Hi, I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female. My guest today is Cassandra Churcher, former executive director of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies and the current assistant director for post-secondary education services for the Inuit in Nunavut. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our sponsor. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Our last podcast featured an interview with Nontumbi Naomi Tutu and Mungi Engomani, who spoke about racial injustice and systemic racism, a conversation that helped us frame the context around the movement of protests we are in the midst of across North America. While the issues brought to light stem from events that have taken place in the U.S., including police brutality, oppression, and justice, we'd be wrong to assume that Canada has a better report card. We spoke about what this all means in a Canadian context with Cassandra Churcher, whose work has been focused on supporting oppressed minorities in Canadian communities from incarcerated women through her work at the Elizabeth Fry Society and today through her work with Aboriginal communities in Northern Quebec. Here is our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's really such a privilege to be able to have a platform to talk about some of these things today. Um, my personal journey, I feel, would be an entirely other podcast, <laughs> but I'd love to talk to you about my professional journey. Um, my academic work has really always focused on culture and values in education, and this was really driven by my own experience and how schooling is really a major tool of socialization. The content and the social codes that are communicated to us through formal education are super powerful in how they contribute and shape our worldview. And that's really what fascinated me. Education as a radical transformative tool, or as we more commonly think of it, this major tool of assimilation. Um, my work in education, which was uh, research and lecturing, led me to working uh, in Indigenous communities. And that's really where I got confronted with the severe inequities and impacts of colonization and really what those impacts look like in the everyday realities of women and girls living in our Indigenous communities. I, I did that work for a number of years. And then in 2017, uh, I moved to Ottawa, where I became the National Executive Director for the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies. And it's there where I really worked as an advocate for community services and prison abolition for at-risk and criminalized girls and women in Canada. Um, since then, I've returned to Indigenous education, working with the Inuit. Uh, and that's my primary work, but my passion around issues that impact the safety, security, and growth of girls and women in Canada remains the same. The reason we're speaking today, I mean, the, the, the past few days have been, have been difficult. We're witnessing uh, literally a racial crisis, uh, primarily in the United States, which extends to us in Canada, really. Uh, even if we know that there, there are more recent episodes of police violence, which have sparked this current movement, have taken place on American soil, although we've had our own here. Um, what are your thoughts on recent events and, and what triggered that, the, the, the massive movement of protest that we're seeing? Listen, I am in my feelings, 
much like everyone else, uh, which is to <laughs> that say... That makes me feel better. No, honestly, it's, it, it's to say I am completely overwhelmed. You know, I move through this world in brown skin. So I am mm-hmm. always aware of tensions and prejudices, but to see the blatant disregard for the rule of law, the police brutality, the pain mm-hmm. and the anger manifested by people of color living in the United States, it's just had a really profound impact on me in the recent days. Um, when I take a step back and think about it, I know what it's doing. It's exposing the failings. And at times I would even go as far as to say the intentional disregard of major systems to safeguard, protect and address these historically marginalized groups in the US. Uh, Mm -hmm. I find it also brings to light the critical importance of leadership and governance. It's not something that I think people immediately go to when you ask them about recent events. And I know there's all these examples uh, circulating where the mayor or the police chief of a particular place has addressed the protesters, and that is encouraging and it's really needed. But we need to be honest, the president is demonstrating a carelessness for the power of his office and really Mm -hmm. a moral negligence regarding the importance of human life and in addition, inciting violence. And that that's really what's dominating my opinion about the whole situation in the U.S. right now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think you, you summed that up really well. And it's not what what is happening is not easy to sum up. Um, we're, you know, you and I both live in, in Canada. A lot of our listeners are Canadian. Um, for for some Canadians here, it's been hard to reconcile what they're seeing as, and, and you know, air, I'll, I'll allow myself air quotes here, uh, an American problem, um, and to reconcile that with the reality of our own country. But really, we know there is racism uh, prevalent in Canada how is the situation different or how is the situation similar? What are the parallels between what's happening in the U.S. and our situation here in in Canada? If anyone listening is watching the events in the U.S., like right now, if people are listening to your podcast and they're watching these events and they are not connecting it with the Canadian context, they are simply not wanting to make the connection. In, in Canada, we have this opportunity right now to be proactive and address systemic racism in policing and policy application. And we can do it in really concrete ways. You know, this week in Montreal, a report was released that documented a pattern of racial bias in the Montreal police force. And the response we got from our premier was that systemic racism and discrimination don't exist. Like, I can't believe I'm saying this, that the person at the top of the government, which oversees my well-being and that of my friends and family and children, does not really comprehend systemic racism. Like, it's deeply concerning because it communicates a tone-deaf message to a Quebec population that has deep issues, as we know, with racism. It was well documented in the Viennes Commission report, which examined Indigenous and public service relationships. It was documented in the Boucher-Taylor report on tolerance. Like, it's not, it's not invisible. It's not that it doesn't exist. Again, if people don't connect to what is happening in the U.S., 
it's because they are choosing not to acknowledge the connection. Right. Because if we, you know, yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, You know, I I just, I feel really strongly about politics. No, of course. (laughs) And the the moral mandate you hold when the public trust is given to you in these elected positions. And for people watching this, here even at home, we can't continue to allow politicians and major systems to go without oversight, accountability. Mm -hmm. And if we draw some parallels, because um, obviously, I think what part of what sparked um, the current situation in the U.S. was, you know, a few specific cases of recent uh, police violence. And I think in Canada, we're, we're seeing less cases, maybe, or is it that they're not covered by media as much? Um, it, it's, I think for, for certain people, it feels like police brutality is not so much an issue. But we know it is right. And you work you've worked with um, uh, incarcerated women. You work with Aboriginal communities um, and I'm putting you on the spot, but maybe you have a few stats to share with us on what it actually looks like for you know racism in Canada and how it's affecting victims of police abuse, uh, you know, higher levels of incarceration or convictions in, in, in cases that are with, you know, in Canada. So. Office of the Correctional Investigator, which is the national ombudsman that oversees the correctional systems across Canada, does an annual report. And in that annual report, which is accessible on the internet, there's great concrete stats about the impacts of over-policing and Mm under-protecting in our Indigenous communities and our communities of colour. The fastest growing populations in Canada for years, years, are indigenous women and women of color right women of african black and caribbean descent to be specific um and every year the reports released and every year the number goes higher and higher and higher what we already know what we want to kind of make the connection about beyond what's happening in terms of this race issue is that all of women's crimes are motivated mostly by economic reason mm-hmm. like 90 percent of women are imprisoned because of economic reasons and what it tells us is that there's this dangerous underpinning between economic disadvantage mm-hmm. and over criminalization and over policing by our justice systems and our police systems so yeah these are canadian stats mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is <laughs> this is what's happening here in our country But one of the challenges, of course, is that in our Canadian culture, we tend to apply a lens that combines two dangerous approaches. One, which is out of sight, out of mind. Yes. And the second, which is no news is good news. Yes. And so it's really easy in our everyday to feel (laughs) disconnected and not impacted by the stats and the numbers. Mm -hmm. Those rarely connect to people's actual lives unless you know people who are impacted by over-policing or racial bias or if you're living that experience yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, it's interesting because in the conversation I just had um, with Naomi Tutu and Mungi Ngomani, we talked about how social media has been playing a huge role in putting a spotlight on, you know, this issue of 
well, mostly po police brutality. And and this the difference now is the news spreads faster and the evidence, you know, gets out faster with everyone having access to a smartphone. Um, but, you know, if, and, and looking at media and headlines, we're not necessarily seeing that coverage. In fact, we're not seeing that coverage. And I was, I noticed over the weekend, it took a few days for Canadian media to catch up on what was going on in the U.S. And, you know, yes, there may have been some coverage around protests or especially if it's a, it's a protest that has more violence taking place. Um, but reading through the headlines of major Canadian newspapers and obviously looking at, at digital platforms, um, there wasn't very much. And there isn't still today, there wasn't very much written about how this relates to our situation in Canada. You know, it's this this whole, it, it really bothers me because we've become so dependent on citizen reporters to be able yes. to capture and document this racial inequity and police brutality. You know, one of the major, I think, instigators for why we saw the reaction we did around George Floyd's murder was because mm -hmm. it was documented on video. And so Correct. it's also, I think, in this really kind of double-sorted way, making us feel less inclined unless we can, quote-unquote, see the concrete proof. For every incident that is captured by video, there are multitudes of incidences on the everyday that will not be documented on video. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's easy for us to kind of, um, especially with the use of internet and social media, to kind of latch on to those concrete pieces of proof to say, here's evidence of racism. Now do something about it. What's harder for us to do in our everyday life is to try to dig down and confront all of the microaggressions and all of the everyday acts of racism that exist in our world that aren't documented. And why that's yeah, not covered yeah. by the media, you know, I think it harkens back to what my original point was, which is, you know, out of sight <laughs> and out of mind, you know, and exactly. also people have a capacity for, let's face it, bad news. Um, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think after the outrage and the anger and the frustration, there's this sense of taking a break from it and getting back mm -hmm. to our our normal lives. And to a certain degree, I kind of get it because it makes people feel guilty or helpless or in general, since it doesn't affect their everyday life, it just seems irrelevant. And it becomes a problem. You know, I rather see people express sadness and guilt even for a brief period of time because to me it indicates mm -hmm. that they're aware. But yes. when people start disengaging or not being connected mm -hmm. to these issues, that's the problem. I don't think ignorance mm -hmm. is a major societal disease. My perspective says apathy is the biggest concern we have right now. When people disen right. disengage and don't care and don't react, that silence and non-recognition or acknowledgement of the issue is what's holding back our ability to create effective systemic change. Um, you know, this, this movement that we're seeing was very much sparked um, by the pandemic and the fact that Black communities, and, and I'll talk about the U.S. for a second, but Black communities have been infected and Black people have been dying uh, of COVID. 
at disproportionate rates um, compared to to well, white people. And although this hasn't again been covered in mainstream media, um, what is the reality in Canada? Because we've definitely seen the numbers in the U.S. and we know it's part of the anger behind a movement of protest we're seeing now. Um, how does that compare here? I'm really glad you're connecting the pandemic with its impact on racialized groups. While the current events are race related, we all know that there are larger issues of like economic oppression, housing instability, intimate partner violence, which, by the way, went through the roof during the pandemic right. shutdown. Mm. Um, all of these show us the impact of the COVID pandemic. The reality is that communities of color, women, the incarcerated, those struggling with addictions, mental health, the elderly, indigenous communities. These populations were already struggling before the pandemic. So then yeah. when COVID hits us, we're all pulled out of our regular lives and we focus on our basic needs, right? Shelter, mm -hmm. food, safety. Now, if you're already living without those things consistently, how do you think the pandemic is gonna impact you? Yeah. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. it really exposed the failings of our country to ensure that the most vulnerable are protected. And the question mm -hmm. is like even more apparent when you see it through the context of indigenous communities where barriers to housing, education, health care, like routine institutionalized racism, which I've been a witness to, continue to compromise their success and well-being. It's mm -hmm. it's all COVID kind of took the curtain away and it's right, right there exactly. in front of us and forcing us to kind of confront these issues and ask the hard questions about what our priorities are as a country. Mm -hmm. And we've had to read through the lines and I, you know, when cities or provinces are reporting on numbers for COVID cases, um, it it becomes very clear when we look at you know parts of a city, uh, specific neighborhoods, we can see uh, the disparity uh, between a, an affluent white neighborhood and then the numbers that we see for for infections in a prevalent black you know poor community or neighborhood. Um, but again, this is something that we have to educate ourselves on because we're not seeing that covered as a mainstream headline in press. It's again back to that idea of it doesn't impact my everyday, so it doesn't impact me. But what COVID yeah. showed us as a global pandemic is that public health is just that. It's public. Mm -hmm. It is shared. When those communities and neighborhoods that you don't ever really visit, that you never really have to go to, when mm -hmm. they get impacted with something like an infectious disease, then their well-being is directly connected to you. And I think yeah. that's one of the the issues that has COVID has kind of pushed to the forefront is a general mm -hmm. unease of the interconnectedness of our shared space. Yes, absolutely. I want to bring up uh, specific, specifically how women are being affected by racial injustice in the U.S. and in Canada. And I know a lot of your work has been focused on defending the rights of, of women, incarcerated women, Aboriginal women. So this is the million dollar question, but how is racism affecting women in Canada in 2020? 
No pressure there, right? Million dollar question. <laughs> Give us the answer. Just, just an easy question <laughs> to ask you. You know, my first instinct is to kind of correct the question. Mm -hmm. um, racism does not affect women of color. It becomes mm -hmm. a part of our lived reality. You're it's right. not this big other experience with uh, racism, capital R. Right. It happens in the smallest everyday events. Someone posts about all lives matter and it kind of makes you pause to think, huh, okay. Or like a woman at the grocery store asks me if these are my children or a friend <laughs> right. says, you know, she prefers my hair straightened to its natural curl. You know, it can also mm -hmm. be witnessing what is happening around us in mm -hmm. our environment to other people of color in our space. There's like this unspoken, unconscious solidarity of, I'm watching. If something happens here, I'm with you. So even when you're not being confronted by indirect or direct racism, it's something that when you're uh, a racialized person, a person of color, if you're indigenous, you're constantly aware of it. It leaves us in a state of hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. um, I also, because this is a podcast for women, have personally struggled with the outrage that followed the death of a man and the silence that is always following the death of a woman of color mm. when they're killed by the police. You know, right. there was George Floyd, but yeah. there was also Breonna Taylor. And it, right. it made me like critically reflect on the continued struggle to ensure that a woman's life is as significant to the movement as a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, on a Canadian note, um, I was encouraged by the Canadian mobilization uh, following the death of Regis Korczynski-Paquette Korch uh, in Toronto recently. Yes. Um, the intersectional existence for women means that you're constantly battling on all these fronts, right? You're battling mm -hmm. racism and sexism, maybe ableism or ageism, definitely violence against women. Like it, feminism for me is an ongoing project to find my identity in what is an intersectional movement that sometimes doesn't apply an intersectional lens. Right. Um, and you know, my daughter who is indigenous has a greater chance of being murdered, going missing, or being incarcerated in Canada than she does of graduating high school. Wow. You know, we should all be asking like what measures the government has taken since all of these reports, the National Inquiry report was mm -hmm. produced, the Truth and Reconciliation report, you know, after COVID that exposed a lot of these things, after something like the violence we saw in the U.S., we all feel a measure of helplessness. Mm -hmm. It feels overwhelming. What mm -hmm. can we do? But there are documented reports of racism and recommendations. I think really what we're lacking or what we need is leaders with the political will to execute them. Yes. They are just, without that, they're just referential tools mm -hmm. that objectify our ongoing resistance to tackle history of racism and sexism. You know, our politicians really need to stop pouring economic and political capital into the systems like prison, policing, privatization, and start redirecting those funds into our communities so women's met needs can be met where they are. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. 
Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners that can provide education, financing, mentoring, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. And actually something I want to ask you is, do you think that what is happening in the U.S., this movement of protests we're seeing, and um, you know, voices have joined the movement here in Canada, do you think it will have a positive impact and help us uh, kind of make the change happen that we need here? Um, in Canada, on an individual level, we need to be writing our elected representatives and advocating for oversight, accountability, electing for representation, insisting mm -hmm. on community consultation. On a major systems level, we need to be defunding the police and prisons and taking that money and investing it in community supports and resources. Right. An example yeah. of that is easy. The COVID relief initiative, the CERB, turn that into a basic income. You know, mm -hmm. economic inequity, uh, inequity and financial insecurity, these are like major determinants for a woman's quality of life. If our government right. just committed to establishing a universal income for Canadians, this would be a major step to addressing these historical disadvantages and providing financial independence and security to, to all our citizens. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's important that we take this, <clears throat> this shared outrage that, you know, we want to we want to offer our, our neighbors in, in the states and turn that into um, activism here at home and uh, apply pressure on our government elects to be making those changes. You know, I almost hesitate to endorse activism because I feel like when your average listener might hear it, it feels mm -hmm. like a lot. You know, I'm right. I'm a single mom with two little kids and I've got to cook dinner every night and I have a full workload and I'm doing and <laughs> and if someone asks me to so do a bit much. one more thing, I'm going to freak out. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. you know, in your everyday, what can you do to be more aware of it? What like when elections come up, when these things happen, you really need to be using your power and your privilege and your space to try to endorse the type of change that you want to see. It doesn't have to be these massive protests. It can be something really simple, like donating funds or just using your social platforms to signal boost a person with lived experience in that population so that they have an outlet and a platform to address the issue from their perspective, not yours. Like there's, there's small steps people can take to kind of feel more engaged in the process and less overwhelmed and helpless. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you've actually answered part of, of the next question I had for you. And um, it's something I discussed with um, uh, Naomi Tutu and her daughter yesterday. Um, something that's been coming up quite a bit on social platforms. And, and I think it's it's if I see a silver lining, what, what is happening is at least there are more conversations being had about the issues 
and people are asking questions and uh, there, there, there is interest in wanting to be educated about the issues at hand. And something that's come up a lot over social platforms is the notion of allyship. So white women offering solidarity to, in this case, black women. Um, I, and when I brought that up, actually, in the conversation with Naomi Tutu and her daughter, um, Naomi had a very interesting uh, point, um, and she kind of challenged the notion of allyship because just by virtue of calling yourself an ally, you're already taking a step back instead of being right there in the struggle along with, you know, black women or any other minority. So you've addressed some of the concrete actions that we can take to be part of a solution um, as opposed to being part of, to, of the problem. But to answer that question that's been going on and on uh, over over Instagram, other platforms, mostly white women, uh, well, white people in general, but I, I speak to a lot of women who are asking, how can I help? What can I do as a white person to uh, help fight this? Um, I am a biracial woman of color. Uh, so I never mm -hmm. approach this question lightly. There are women in, who are white in my life, who are my family, my mother, my friends, and they mm -hmm. struggle to unpack their privilege and their role in actively supporting women of color all the time. Um, right. I know they are grappling with questions of what can they do? How can they get involved? What is their responsibility to this issue? And I can really recognize that the work of standing in solidarity and affecting change, like I said before, takes many forms. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to be overwhelmingly discouraged if someone just shares a quote because, mm -hmm. and they don't do much of anything else. Because to me, that shows me that they are aware and they're engaged that something is happening. Like they're trying mm -hmm. in their mm -hmm. every day to at least be part of a conversation that needs their voice. Um, right. As I said before, the answer is not one answer to this question. It's intensely personal. And really it has to come from a meaningful and authentic place of wanting to yes. be proactive in dismantling the systems of oppression that continue to adversely impact women and people of color. Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking about this. I've been thinking about this a lot because the people in my life are asking me. And I, I broke it down in these kind of three things that I think are important. And they're by no means, you know, formal steps to take, but things mm -hmm. to consider. First, awareness. Reflecting and not denying your privilege, thinking about yes. how you can use it to support these issues is important. Um, also, listening, taking the time to read and educate ourselves on what the experience has been for those who are actually living it will go mm -hmm. a long way to reconciling where you meaningfully want to bring your privilege to support it. Um, mm -hmm. And the last thing is action. Like everyone in their own way has to figure out how you translate everyday proactive measures to demonstrate that solidarity. Write a letter, donate the money, go to a protest, mm -hmm. vote, try to elect people who have the best interests of all at the core of their practice. Like these are all things that people can do to try to be in the movement with us because you know what it's not that 
This is a Black Lives Matter issue. This mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. an issue that belongs to all of us. And when yes. we are able to affect that change, everyone will benefit from it. Would you have suggestions, maybe if somebody was to pick up a book um, to help educate themselves on the uh, issues of uh, around race, around uh, equality, um, and and you know, given given the current context, is there a book that you find yourself turning to, or an author maybe that you'd like to recommend? You know, I really think that this could be a whole podcast in itself. Because mm -hmm. I love books. And that would be a fun I, one, actually. Yeah, I love books. And I like not just recommending them. I like talking about why I love them. Um, but I did. So let's let's get into it. Well, you know, just, I just maybe a, a bit shorter than a full podcast. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, um, I, I've just finished reading Mickey Kendall's book, Hood Feminism, the the movement that women forgot women of color. It's, it's a great book. Mm -hmm. Mickey Kendall wrote it. Um, I started. I think, well, years ago with Peggy McIntosh's White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. even though the target is this white privilege focus and deconstructing it, it really was able to demonstrate to me that even though I'm a woman and even though I'm a woman of color, I have benefited from privilege. So that was really seminal to my, my understanding of, of race. Um, the Skin I Am In by Desmond Cole, this fantastic book that was just released last year, all Canadian content, 100% Canadian content. Desmond Cole uh, is also an associate of Elle Jones, the academic, the activist, the poet out of Nova Scotia, who's been doing incredible work mobilizing uh, around black issues in Canada for years before this became a topic of conversation. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't also suggest uh, Red Skin, White Masks by Glenn Sean Coulthard. And that really mm -hmm. oh, is yeah. to dig down on this um, question of the Indigenous issue and where we stand in our own privilege and uh, our own inability to concretely and meaningfully address where we are with our communities of Indigenous people. So I think that would be a really good read for a lot of people who have the time for it. Then I want to ask you what is probably uh, on, on regular podcasts, you know, year round. It's my favorite question to ask guests on the show. And it's what do you wish women would do more of? I would like women to consider in their words and actions, whether it's at home or at school, the words of Audre Lorde, which are, I am not free while any woman is unfree even when her shackles are very different from my own. Uh, so appropriate for, for right now. That's, that is a great one. Thank you so much, Cassandra. This was great. I really appreciated getting your perspective on what's happening in Canada. And we'll, we'll, stay, we'll stay in touch. Maybe we'll have another conversation uh, when we see how all of this evolves over the, the next few weeks. Thank you so much uh, for having me. This has been a fantastic opportunity. And just the fact that you're creating space to have these conversations is really, really significant. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you did, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. 
visit thebrenniesfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening. Yeah.